This week on Beyond Stillness, Stories After Stroke, guest John Humphrey, a father, husband, and caregiver, shares his story entitled Finding Life 2.0. He discusses the dilating nature of time, the self inside the body, and ways he welcomes Life 2.0, Life After Stroke. Thank you for joining us for part one, John Humphrey's story. Hello and welcome to Beyond Stillness. Stroke offers a powerful, life-changing shift in perspective. Each colorful memory creates a parable for life's greater teachings, a compass for journeys ahead, and inspired wisdom for unique growth. This radio show, Beyond Stillness, offers an hour of pause for storytelling and reflection. Ultimately, Beyond Stillness is a welcoming environment that reveres the moment beyond strokes paralysis. Still moments unite humanity and divinity. I'm your host, Molly Bucola. Today's guest is John Humphrey, a 49-year-old from Chicago, Illinois. He's a father, a husband, a caregiver. He had no prior experience with stroke until 2013. The talk that he's prepared today is entitled Finding Life 2.0. So now we hold space. We gather ourselves, our thoughts, our minds, our bodies grounded in this space. We offer thanks for ways that we have been challenged and supported throughout our lives. We give thanks for the people who have shown up when we've needed them offered care, support, love, and inspiration. We ask for courage and help and patience as our life unfolds to maybe the life 2.0. Help us to welcome change and navigate with grace. Before we begin, we take a moment of pause to honor our relationship with time. Understanding the incremental moments where we feel truly present or truly distracted and how each builds on each other Until one day, we are a day later, a week later, a month later, maybe a year or years. And when we reflect upon our recovery, help us to hold those incremental moments in the palm of our hands, 
with compassion. Seeing each moment of presence and impatience as an opportunity to honor the life we've been given. And may we use our time and love our time in a way that honors the person we are deep down so that we may share with a world in need of our gifts. And we give thanks. Michelle's stroke occurred January of 2013. She was three months pregnant with our second child, and about a week before, she began to feel waves of massive dizziness overcome her. Twice we went to the ER, and twice they gave her fluids and vitamins and released her. The day before the stroke, she woke up and said that she was feeling like she was floating and couldn't lie down on the couch because she had no concept how her body related to her surroundings. I called 911 and they took her to the hospital and there her condition deteriorated. But since she had a history of very bad migraines and preeclampsia with our prior child, they seemed to just describe it to a bad morning sickness bout. But they did keep her in the maternity wing for observation. The next day, I was to pick her up, but I instead got a call from the doctor saying I'd better get over there. Apparently, as they were discharging her, she stood up to get her clothes on when the stroke hit. Thankfully, the nurse on duty knew what was happening and immediately got her into an MRI, and that's when I got here. The stroke hit both hemispheres of her cerebellum due to a blockage in her basilar artery. The doctors were initially guardedly hopeful that given her age and health, that she would uh, uh, have a very good prognosis. But by her second day, their mood had changed decidedly. The stroke was continuing to evolve and started to affect her pons in the brainstem. And for two weeks, she was in the ICU, and then for about another two weeks in a regular hospital room. On Valentine's Day of 2013, she was transferred to the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago, uh, now the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, and stayed there until May. Initially, Michelle could not talk. She needed a food peg. She needed a trach, and she was paralyzed throughout her entire body, although she could feel it if you pricked her. I can't say enough good things about the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. There was a commitment there on their part to get every single possible ability of hers back and leave absolutely nothing on the table. It was an aggressive stun gun of a program that she was assaulted by uh, PT, OT, and SLP several times per day. They put weights on her. They put her on a treadmill. They were very relentless. By discharge, she could walk, but she needed me holding her with a gait belt. She needed assistance with bathing and toileting. She could eat but only with pureed food with thicket mixed in. That very first year was a grind, but we kept at it. Today, 10 years later, I would describe her recovery as good, but not great. She can walk, but is susceptible to falling and can't run. She can talk, but her voice is significantly altered. She can eat, but can't be distracted and is at frequent risk of choking. She can't drive, she can bathe herself. Her attention span has improved greatly, but it falls apart with fatigue. Somewhere between Mr. Humphrey, you better come to the hospital to the radiology department, and Mr. Humphrey, she's officially discharged, the question of what a person arose. I know it sounds silly and almost stupid, but I realized who we are as people changed. 
I had the lazy definition of one before. I would think it's just them over there. Inside and outside were indivisible, each one shaping how I viewed the other. That definition came crashing down that January, as I mentioned. Michelle's stroke happened at the hospital. And when I arrived at the hospital, she was already in the MRI. When she came out, her eyes were dilated and moving without intelligent control, kind of like a chameleon with each eye able to move independently. She could only moan and grunt, and she had lost bowel control. Her gait was deteriorating, and there was nobody there to help me because I don't think they knew how severe her stroke was because it was evolving in real time. I was alone in the hallway of the hospital by myself holding her up. She could only make animal noises, but you could tell they were noises of terror because she knew something was dreadfully wrong, but she didn't know what. Right in front of me, I saw the neuro connections being pulled out of their sockets one by one, like an old-time telephone switchboard. Who Michelle was was still there, but her body was breaking down, and it became pretty obvious that first night who we are as a people is not our body. It is an obvious tautology, but I think we slip into those lazy approaches in dealing with people. I would come into the ICU, and I would always start by telling her two things. I know you're still in there. We won't abandon you. Don't think or worry. We think you're gone. And I would also tell her the date because I wanted her to still feel tethered to this world and get a sense of the passage of time. I told Michelle the time each day, because I could tell her understanding of day and night was off, as was her understanding of how time was flowing, at the usual one second per second. To her, four months in the hospital were just one long day, and I wanted her to feel the normal divisions of time she would have to encounter at release, so that she'd feel more integrated. But time really did elongate. Because you measure time very differently between neurologist appointments, between taking out and putting away the transfer chair for the shower, time after a stroke is really messed up. During her recovery, Michelle always knew who she was, but her awareness came over time. She came forward, and that's the best way I can describe it. In the beginning, it was like she had fallen to the bottom of a very deep well. She was still herself, but there was a gulf that separated us. And over time, she, the person, came forward from the back, closer and closer to a surface. So I would say who we are is who we are, and our body is kind of like a scuba outfit. It's useful for interacting with our environment, but it's very different than the scuba diver themselves who animates it with their intelligence. I'll never forget seeing just how vulnerable and dependent she was stuck in a profoundly disabled body and how important and thankful I was that every single person talked to her like an adult, to the point that her doctors, before they acknowledged me in the room, would go to her first, greet her, talk to her, peer-to-peer, and then come talk to me. It is hard to describe how something that little could give so much meaning. One of the three biggest difficulty days uh, was uh, discharge, uh, was a very, very difficult day. Rick prepped me for that as much as possible, but it was like landing an airplane with its wheels up at night on an aircraft carrier in 30-foot swells. I went from being a two-parent, one-child family to overnight being a one-parent, two-child family. One of them was special needs. The weariness and exhaustion took me to places I did not know I could go, but either I developed it or brought out the resilience in me that I didn't know I had. One of the bigger difficulties in recovering from a stroke is that a few people understand what it takes to recover. Except for the therapists and frequent visitors, most people remember the pre-stroke person they might visit part of the way through and then see them at discharge. What goes on in between is cloaked. 
So when I say um, patience is needed, I mean a reorientation to a very different clock and realizing recovery is not a straight line at all. When the stroke hits, your world stops being counted in ordinary time. Your past life is over and gone, never to come back. The future, it is totally opaque. When Michelle's stroke hit, we had a two-year-old and we're three months along with our second and we're looking to buy a house. And then, record scratch, that's all gone. There is no planning for the future. There is no planning even for next week. You cannot even plan for that day. That is all gone. I learned that in ICU. I would come in trying to get a sense for what was going to happen that day and realize there is no happen. It is the immediate needs of that moment only. And on one day, I was just waiting for a PCT to take Michelle to a follow-up MRI. And that's it. You're waiting for a PCT. Your entire existence in the chair of an ICU room is waiting for a PCT. You don't plan when you're going to see the doctor, get results, figure out what the next course of action is. You are waiting to get an MRI. That is the island of your life at that moment. The world around you continues on at its pace, but yours is in 15-minute chunk. That is about as far as you can look. There is no planning for a house. There is no arranging for assisted living. You have no idea if your wife is going to make it through the night. You can't anticipate questions for the doctor. You're just waiting for a PCT to go to an MRI. But a curious thing happens as recovery progresses. You flip from measuring time in 15-minute chunk to three-month chunk. You, of course, want to see improvement every single day, but that doesn't happen. It took Michelle three or four months to learn how to hold a fork. I would visit OT sessions, and I would see her trying to hold a fork. Not once, not twice, but hundreds of attempts per session, and it never worked. So what did I see the next day? Her trying to hold a fork. Not once, not twice, but hundreds of times per session. A whole week would go by, and she couldn't hold a fork. So that's what happened the next week, was fork holding. By month three or four, she was able to hold the fork, but struggled finding her mouth. So you start with rep after maddening rep, start finding her mouth with the fork. You realize you start measuring time on a daily basis, and that becomes dispiriting. You have to start measuring time on a quarterly basis, and that's when you start to see the shape recovery is really going to take. To a casual observer, they saw Michelle hold a fork before her stroke, and maybe would see her once in the hospital, and then suddenly a year later, she's holding a fork, completely ignorant of how many days and thousands of repetitions it took to get there, for something as simple as holding a fork. Now spin that process up to standing, walking, talking, swallowing, using the toilet, opening a pack of gum, pulling the sheets back on a bed, tying your shoes, coordinating, walking with a cane, trying to write the letter W, using a keyboard, plug in a cell phone charger, and the enormity starts to come into focus. So patience becomes the rhythm of life for us. Our units of time is not linear. Time meanders. It's sized both in micro chunks and vast time periods. And that yields a patience on a level I didn't know existed. And it always instills a long view of things. And I realized quickly that Michelle was not playing on a 100-yard field of recovery, but on a 1,000-yard one, with progress measured in angstroms, not yards. And when I described, what I just described was not immediately apparent to me. It took me a long time to realize that the old life was never coming back. I could get mad about it, but that wouldn't change the fact that life was life 2.0 now. And my instant reaction was, but I don't want life 2.0, I liked life 1.0. But once I started taking the longer view of things, I realized that what life 2.0 turned out to be would be dependent on what I made of it. So I started to slow down, and I took Ferris Bueller's advice to look around 
and allow common experience to bring happiness and see life for what it is. And when I did so, I realized a changed life does not have to mean a bad life. When a stroke happens, it takes so much away, away from the stroke survivors, from their family. Many of the things you could do or wanted to do are not possible and never will be, and that needs to be accepted sooner rather than later, or it becomes even harder. So you're handed a blank slate to rebuild your life. Now, you don't want to look at other people. They have a richer color selection. But you can do a lot with just the primary colors. It's how you mix them that counts. So you might ask, isn't that worse? And I would say, no, not at all. Consider going to an art museum. You were planning to see some Vermeers and Caravaggios. You love them. You planned your whole life to see them when they came on exhibition. Everyone you know is going to see them, but not now. Your ticket just got taken away and you were handed a new one and it does not allow you to go. You have to watch everyone else pile into the galleries you had planned on going to see. But if you look down, you see that your replacement ticket is for 20th century American painters. You don't know much about them and never really gave them much consideration, usually walk past their displays on the way to the master. But since this is the only place you can go, you have no choice. And you were forced to go into that room and you slow down and you start to look at everything. And you notice the talent and beauty of a Grant Wood and Edward Hopper. And you see the subtleties of what they created. Before, you would just breeze past their work because they seemed to be simple and common. But now you see them for their depth. And such a perspective would not have happened had not your ticket been changed. And what's more, you become thankful you were given a replacement ticket because you realize not everyone in your circumstance was given a replacement. For some, the single and now lost ticket is all they had. Just like a June evening, I appreciate a warm, quiet June evening in ways I never did before. The cicadas, the sounds of kids playing, the drinking of the Kool-Aid, sitting around my garden. But John, you might think everybody loves a June evening. That's not unique. I would say that's true. But just like the 20th century American artists, they would just breeze through it and say, oh, this is a nice evening. Now let's go kayak. But when the June evening on the patio is the event, you appreciate it deeper. And that is life 1.0 versus life 2.0. We are now 10 years on and every day continues to be make it up as you go. And I will say I've had a moment to reflect and make sense of all of this. I'm devout in my belief that life is not a random collection of quantum chance. I believe, as Hamlet says, there is a divinity that shapes our ends, rephew them how we will. Ah, but what does it all mean? Well, here too I learned that the faith I thought I had was not faith, that I needed a much, much, much deeper understanding of what faith is. While not physically seen to the other side of this life, this experience has altered in a radical way my understanding of faith. Prior to the stroke, I took faith to mean recognizing some things are known and understandable while others are not, and faith is that which fills those blanks. I would think, I may not understand everything, but I have faith that God is good and present in those voids. The problem I discovered is such a view is not really faith, because all you've done is confine God to those pockets of ignorance in a reality that I myself have defined. With the stroke, I learned that faith is significantly more difficult but more rewarding. Consider, if we have the power to prevent suffering but do not, God would judge us, and rightly so, for we had the power to intercede but did nothing. Yet, God has such power, and suffering did occur. Are we then held to a higher moral standard to God, I would ask, where we have a duty to act but God does not? Well, that of course is ridiculous, but it does illustrate the problem of A, God is powerful and good, and not A, suffering happens. 
two things which cannot both be true and yet have the appearance of being so. Standing in the ICU, I was viewing what I believed to be a moral paradox. Both A and not A were playing out in front of me. I had reached a frontier of the impossible to reconcile, explain, or understand and was being asked to validate two contradictory things. This wasn't simply a lack of knowledge. It was pressing the very nature of my understanding of what God was, and my old definition of faith was not adequate to explain it. So I asked, is this where faith ends, at this irreconcilable horizon of contradiction flying in the face of the evidence? Or is this where faith actually begins, pushing right past that horizon and realizing faith doesn't have to answer for everything, doesn't have to match the fact, and in fact works best when it is in gross contradiction of them? This is the liberating aspect of faith I learned. It doesn't need to resolve A and not A any longer. For better or worse, this vantage point has assisted in grappling with other profoundly difficult moments in life. To an outside observer, I worry it comes off as uninterested or unfeeling, when in fact I think I feel things deeper than before. It's just that with this definition of faith, I can go through something I have no control over and is going to unfold whether I like it or not, because all existence is in what I call the solutions that of God. It changes you forever. This is the thinning of the veil I think about a lot, and I feel very confident that I am being shown that this is what true faith demands, not that I'm there yet at all, not a faith that God lives in my pockets of ignorance, but it demands I acknowledge a reality far different than the one I think I lived in. Thank you, John. Thank you for devoting time and space to listen to part one, John Humphrey's story. Stick with us for part two, John Humphrey's interview, right here on Beyond Stillness, Stories After Stroke. Each colorful memory creates a parable for life's greater teachings, a compass for journeys ahead, and inspired wisdom for unique growth. In this episode of Beyond Stillness, guest John Humphrey, a father, husband, and caregiver, shared his story entitled, Finding Life 2.0. He discussed the dilating nature of time, the self inside the body, and ways he welcomes life 2.0, life after stroke. If you enjoyed this moment of pause for storytelling and reflection, please like, share, or subscribe to the Beyond Stillness Stories After Stroke podcast. Again, thanks for listening. And remember, As part of the Stroke community, you are more than supportive. You are inspirational. If you are part of the Stroke community and have a story you'd like to share on the show, please contact us. Email molly at beyondstillness.org.